happy Saturday. This and every Saturday we come to you uh, live at this time and with conversations that I hope encourage you, maybe challenge you, stretch your way of thinking, help you to live on mission in a world that's kind of kind of a, a bit of a mess sometimes. And and we're going to talk today about some issues that I, that I think you might find particularly helpful. We're actually going to talk about uh, a new book called The Race Wise Family uh, by Michelle Reyes. I'm going to introduce her in just a minute. Uh, but I do want to encourage you, this might be the kind of program that you might want to share with somebody. So you could text a friend, you could turn into uh, Moody Radio, our partners and affiliates. You know, we've got partners and affiliates across the country uh, from Faith Radio in the you know North Central States, K-Wave out in the West Coast, and oh gosh, Moody Radio, all kinds of places. That um, Thank you for carrying our program, and thank you for listening as well. We're also going to take your calls just a little bit later on, and uh, we're going to engage in this conversation about some of these issues about how we are to uh, honor our ethnic differences. What does it look like to uh, engage our children in these conversations, which I think is kind of a unique, um, it's, it's a unique angle and resource that I think is helpful. So I actually reached out, uh, had our team reach out to uh, the author. But let me tell you, Brett Hart, Michelle Reyes is the vice president of the Asian American Christian Collaborative. And she's scholar in residence at Hope Community Church in Austin, Texas. She's the co-author of The Race Wise Family. And she speaks at regularly at events um, and, 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 and teaches. And she talks about faith, culture, and justice. And is the author of the ECPA award-winning Becoming All Things. So I'm super excited to have her uh, on the program. Welcome to, uh, to our conversation today, Michelle. Hey, Ed. Thanks for having me. Well, good deal. We're glad you're. I was just literally nearby you in Texas. If you're still down there in Texas, and I will just tell you, it is hot. Nice. But, yes, uh, it <laughs> it's it's very, in the hundreds. Oh, it is. Man. Oh my gosh, it was so crazy. We were down at the San Antonio Convention Center, which I recognize is not the same town you live in. But um, but when I was down there, uh, I was speaking for the uh, CityGate Forum, which is the the wonderful leaders who lives lead city missions across North America, ministering to the poor and the homeless. It was great, mm. great. Uh, time there, but I thought, how do you people live in this heat? And I actually said that to somebody, and they shook their head and said, "You live in Chicago. It's winter for seven months a year." So, I received that as a correct reality. You have very oh, nice months, man. maybe just not this month. Well, listen, I grew up in Minnesota, so I am used to the cold. I feel like I can handle the cold a lot better than the heat, but uh, you're right. If you're in Texas in the summer, if you're going to be outside, you have to be near water or else it's just uh, a little unbearable. So I'm, I'm with you there. <laughs> that's, a, that's, a good, that's a good way to put it. That's a good way to put it. Okay, so let's jump into our conversation and learn a little bit about you first, because it does frame. I mean, the, the, the book kind of, the book, by the way, is called The Race Wise Family. We're going to take some calls later and some of your brilliant, insightful calls. I'm going to give away a few copies of the books to people who bring in brilliant, insightful questions or comments. But tell us about you, your family's experience with, uh, with maybe racial prejudice, how it's informed your race-wise family message in your own journey. Talk to us a little bit about that. Sure. Well, in terms of my ethnic roots, I'm second generation bicultural Indian American. Uh, and what I mean by that is that my mother is 100% ethnically Indian, although she herself was not born and raised in India. Uh, her great great grandparents were brought by the British Empire to build the railroads in Uganda and Kenya. So she was born and raised in Uganda, uh, grew up, you know, speaking. Gujarati, Hindi, Swahili, uh, learning English as well. And then her family 
fled under the dictatorship of President Idi Amin uh, when he waged a genocide against the minorities in Uganda, including Indians, uh, and were resettled as refugees in England. Uh, my mom eventually made her way to the United States in the early 70s. Now, my dad is blonde-haired, blue-eyed. He's of British and German descent. Uh, and oh, wow. it, it's fun because I have a seven-year-old and a three-year-old, and my seven-year-old looks just like me, uh, you know, kind of darker caramel colored skin, brown hair, brown eyes. Uh, but our three-year-old daughter has blonde curly hair and blue eyes uh, like my dad. And so beauties of a multiracial family, but it's, it's an interesting picture and representation of what it means to be me, my, my own mixed identity uh, of, of having both the stories of British and Indian history uh, within my own uh, personhood, which in essence means that I have the stories of the colonizer and the colonized, the oppressor and the oppressed uh, in in my history. Uh, and, and I think that's part of the dizzying reality of being mixed is standing at that crossroads of majority and minority culture. Um, but in my in my own life and story, as I, as, as I share in, in my books, uh, I've, I've learned to see the beauty in that, to learn to see the the ways in which God has raised up mixed folks like myself um, to be bridge builders and to pursue racial reconciliation across these cultural divides. Uh, and I, I like to say, when it comes to talking about cultural identity, myself included, I am like all Indians, like some Indians and like no other Indian. Uh, I'm a unique individual. We are not, yeah. uh, Indians are not a monolith. No, no cultural group is a monolith. Um, I, I like curry and dal and I like barbecue. I, I, I like to drink chai and LaCroix, <laughs> you know, um, and, and uh, that's just part of the beauty of how God has uh, made me. And so um, I, I will say, though, that being Indian, growing up in a, a very white Scandinavian town in Minnesota, I stuck out. People didn't know what to do with me. Uh, you know, my mom, myself, my sister, we were the only brown skinned people that my neighbors and my, my fellow church congregants and my fellow students at school knew. Uh, and, and so just there was a lot of feeling like a misfit, feeling out of place, feeling like I didn't belong. Um, and then also because I'm mixed, I don't look in some ways, I don't have like traditional Indian features. So I was, I was too brown for my white friends. I was too white for my brown friends. Uh, people mm -hmm. confused me as being Latina or Turkish. Or um, I remember after 9-11, people uh, asking me if I was a terrorist, right? Like confusion over like wow. if I'm in my Middle yeah. Eastern, right? And, and so just different experiences of racial profiling and microaggressions and and whatnot. And, and so... My own writing, uh, the books I've written, uh, this, this, this book, The Race Wise Family, co-authored with Helen Lee, is really just sharing those stories, those, those stories of pain. But also um, my hope is to not share those in a way that feels like it's, it's shame-filled or guilt-ridden. Um, I recognize people don't know what they don't know. And so this is an invitation to say, hey, let's let, let me peel back these curtains on what I've experienced as an Indian American, as an Asian American. Um, you know, let, Helen and I, we're writing this book as Asian American Christian moms. And perhaps people will look at their bookshelves and 
maybe consider how many books they have by Asian Americans on their bookshelves, particularly about race, uh, and and say, okay, there's there's new stories at the table here. How can I fit these within maybe my traditional black white paradigm on race, and how can I grow? Um, so that's that's in part uh, the hope with with these books. Yeah, no, so good. So good. And of course, and Helen, I know Helen, and she's one of my favorite people. And so I'm I'm so glad that you wrote that with her. I also do want to mention that you wrote Becoming All Things, which is how small changes lead to lasting connections across cultures. And uh, so a couple of resources, all of those are linked at edstetzerlive.com. You can get there, uh, you know, find all the information about Michelle uh, and more. You did leave out perhaps one of the most important moments in your entire bio is that you are a graduate of Wheaton College. I just want to get that <laughs> into the conversation. Uh, I fellow Weedy, yes. I, you know, exactly, fellow <laughs> Weedy. I'm, I'm a professor at Wheaton College, so that, that makes sense. And your, your educational journey is fascinating as well. I know this is just framing conversation, but tell me a little bit about your, I mean, not just the Wheaton College thing, yeah. but, but you know, your, 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 your writing comes out of, well, t- tell us about your education. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and, and by the way, I played soccer at, at Wheaton. Uh, nice. My, my husband, Aaron uh, also went to Wheaton. He played on the football team. Uh, but yeah, I have a, a kind of joke. I have a little bit of a checkered professional career uh, in the sense that <laughs> I began, uh, you know, my, my, PhD is in 18th century German literature, so I began Which as a German professor. Which is fascinating to me. <laughs> <laughs> because it's so, just such a natural path to become a German professor. Yes, That's so fascinating. Of course, yeah. of course. Well, you know, ninth grade, I had to choose a language, and my, and my dad had German roots, and so that was, you know, felt more personal than mm-hmm. taking Spanish or French, and the rest is history. Um, but yeah. I, so I used to teach at the University of Illinois at Chicago. I taught downtown at Moody Bible Institute, and then when we came down to Austin and planted a church, I taught at a local um, liberal arts university here in Austin. Uh, but w- being, you know, my focus, 18th century German literature, uh, I taught folklore, mythology, uh, fantasy, you know, German, French, Italian, uh, as well as feminist revisions of, of, of folklore. And, you know, it's it's interesting because what drew me to that topic was uh, the theme of narrative justice. I mean, folklore is all about the the poorest people, the stories of the poorest people in the land and all of the horrible things that they have to encounter, you know, from from uh, starvation to political oppression uh, and everything in between predators. And the question, of course, is when people who have zero relational and financial financial capital go through like horrors and traumas, how do they engender justice for themselves? And and so often uh, in folklore, it's it's these these poorest of, of people learning to share their story, to raise their voice, to to tell their community what happened, and kind of collectively work towards uh, restoration. Uh, and you know, in two thousand seventeen, uh, I I switched to pursuing a full time vocational ministry alongside my husband. We planted a church in, in in Austin, and what I've found is that God has used that same passion for narrative justice now within the context of the local church. And so a lot of what I do as scholar in residence at Hope Community Church is uh, connecting with locals, connecting with local officials, pursuing justice initiatives and thinking through how do we care for um, our disadvantaged black and brown community and elevate their voices um, to the higher ups, to our mayor, to our governor, to our representatives. How do we organize conferences and workshops on immigration and platform and center 
immigrants to lead these conversations or talk about uh, gun reform or what's happening on death row and actually center the people who have been, uh, who are innocent and who have been uh, maligned in these topics. And so uh, God's kind of bringing it full circle <laughs> and then also bringing yeah. in these conversations on culture and race. Um, but but literary analysis, biblical literary analysis, uh, that that will always be my my first love. Fascinating, fascinating. Okay, good. We're going to continue our conversation with uh, Michelle Reyes in just a moment. Also going to open up to your calls. We're going to be talking about the, her, her new book, The Race Wise Family. She co-authored it with our mutual friend, Helen Lee. And uh, we're going to talk some about, you know, how do we do this in a family? I mean, I, I've heard Michelle can go opine on a wide range of subjects. Well, maybe we'll get to and through some of those. But we want to have you join in the conversation. Our number is 877-548-3675 here on Ed Stetzer Live. As believers in Jesus, we know our citizenship on earth is actually temporary. But the days can be challenging navigating a world in cultural decline. A.W. Tozer brings help and encouragement in his book, Culture, Living as Citizens of Heaven on Earth. He tackles the how-to of confronting and battling worldliness while we live in anticipation of heaven. Be better equipped to take on each day. Read Culture, Living as Citizens of Heaven on Earth. Your copy is at moodypublishers.com. Hey, everybody. Ed Stetzer here. By the way, I didn't introduce myself. I should. I uh, am a dean and professor at Wheaton College, and I lead the Wheaton College Billy Graham Center. And uh, love having the conversations conversations with you on this and every Saturday. Love having this conversation with Michelle Reyes. I actually want to have 10 conversations with Michelle Reyes just based upon the journey and the expertise that she brings to the conversation. But she has a new book, and that's prim primarily we're going to focus on. Um, and it's called The Race Wise Family. She co-authored it with Helen Lee. Um, so let's talk about some of these things, because um, one of the phrases you both use in the book is, um, and I want to kind of ask first, why is seeing color, quote unquote, seeing color, a hallmark of a race-wise family? So if you both answer that and maybe talk a little about what, what do you mean by race-wise, but jump in, please. Yeah, definitely. Well, to, to go backwards, the, being a race-wise family at its core is uh, having a desire to, you know, see the the race related issues around us, uh, the racial brokenness around us, and bring that before God, and to seek His wisdom both in prayer and in His Word, uh, and and uh, you know we we wanted to press into that, encourage folks, uh, particularly parents, uh, in this cultural moment because I think for too long either. One, there's there's been sort of this disengagement, um, this sort of fear-based approach to race where it's just, you know, uh, don't ask, don't tell, uh, or just kind of hoping that we can shield our parent, our, our, our children from what's happening in the world. And the, and the reality is, uh, as we see particularly with Gen Z, uh, this is their world. This is the world that they were born into. They are they are confused, they are angry, they are asking questions. And if we as parents don't take the lead in sort of guiding them toward uh, God's word and also uh, God's hope, God's sovereignty <laughs> in these issues, uh, they will be formed elsewhere. Uh, and so, you know, it's a, it's a critical moment for us to say, you know, 
sure, you know, it's okay to have other outside positive influences speaking to your children, you know, the church, or maybe they go to a Christian school or they have other, you know, Christian friends. Uh, those aren't bad things, but these uh, formative conversations and postures should begin in the home. And we try, and you know, we want to show the biblical precedent um, for that. But I think in terms of your, your second question about, you know, why should we see and color. I I think this is a uh, important question to be asking in this cultural moment uh, because, I, and I have so many people ask me all the time, hey, what's so wrong about being colorblind? Um, and sure. I, I get it because, you know, the rallying cry from the civil rights era was that being colorblind was a new and healthier way forward for race relations. Uh, in fact, the, the term colorblind is borrowed right from the last part of Dr. King's uh, I Have a Dream speech, where he says he wants people to see his children for the content of their character, not the color of their skin. And so, you know, people ran with that. Christians ran with that and said, well, of course, we don't want skin color to be this justification for treating people unequally and on principle. That is correct. But this isn't the 1960s. We live in 2022 and things have changed. Uh, black and brown folks are raising their voices about the importance of seeing color. And what we've realized is that one of the unintended, conse unintended consequences for you know, well-meaning people uh, who strive to be colorblind is that they have simultaneously become blind to the everyday pain points of ethnic minorities uh, in an attempt to treat all of us the same, you know, vis-a-vis -vis not seeing black, brown, or white, people's racialized experiences of everything from profiling, microaggressions, racism, police brutality, and more have become swept under the, under the rug. And so when folks say, uh, see the color of my skin, what they're asking is see and acknowledge my stories of suffering and pain. And I think that's what we're trying to communicate in, in our book is that um, if we want to fully understand a person's heart and a person's story, we have to see the totality of their life's experiences. We can't turn away from the harder, more painful parts. And I think this is how we see different cultures, the way that God as El Roy, the God who sees, sees people. And so, um, you know, the next time someone talks about the more difficult, their more difficult life experiences, how that intertwines with their ethnic background or their skin color, for followers of Jesus, a simple yet powerful response is just, I believe you and I'm sorry that happened to you. Uh, and, and, and so I think one of the most important lessons that we as parents, as, as pastors, as leaders can learn when it comes to culture and race is that what was helpful for one generation won't always be helpful for the next. Uh, and in this cultural moment, racial healing can't happen if we don't fully see each other in color. Interesting. Okay, good. I want to talk more about that too. Um, again, the book we're talking about, and she mentioned, is The Race Wise family, the race-wise family, uh, 10 postures to becoming households of healing and hope. I, I want you to help me though a little bit because as we, you know, people listening, you, you use words earlier, like racialized, you were, you talk about black and brown. Let's define a little bit about what that is. So everyone's kind of using the same language, at least in our program today, because racialized is a term that, that probably is, well, it's newer in the conversation. Uh, what do you mean by that? And, and then help us unpack the, the implications of that. Yeah, well, you know, it's that's a really important, actually, distinction between race and culture, uh, because culture is how we were created. We were created as cultural 
image bearers. Uh, and, and you can trace this all the way for, uh, through scripture from Genesis chapters one and two through Pentecost and, and Revelations chapter seven and, and 21, that God created us with uh, unique stories born from our ethnic backgrounds, that we were created uh, with different skin colors uh, and languages and and different even expressions of our faith. And that's a good and beautiful thing. Uh, race, on the other hand, is a social hierarchy that says, okay, we're going to uh, say that certain people with certain skin colors uh, are superior and certain people with other skin colors are inferior and we're going to make a ranking system out of it. And so, uh, we, you know, we want to separate those two to, 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 to name what is good and what is bad. Uh, but then in terms of racialized experiences, it's, it's uh, for my, for example, myself as an Indian American brown skinned woman saying, Hey, there have been people that have treated me in these sort of inferior ways because of my brown skin, and I could I could go on and on about sure, you know sure. I, I've been I've I've been refused uh, um, to be treated at a, at a restaurant, refused service at a restaurant. I I, I went into a restaurant once, and it was you know a you know fair skinned white uh, waiter uh, who took one look at me and just said, no, I, you know, get out. Um, I've, I've taken my children to, uh, you know, we, we've, for most of our uh, time in ministry, we've lived under the poverty line. So we've been on, you know, Medicare and go to, you know, government clinics for, for um, medical service and things like that. And we've, we've gone to uh, clinics where one, not only have I been treated as a as a, or assumed I've been a single Latina mother <laughs> because my, my last mm, name sure. is Reyes. Uh, sure. But then two, um, we've had doctors who have refused to treat my children, but, you know, kind of shaming me uh, for, you know, saying, well, maybe it's your, your diet or maybe you don't feed your kids well, like go home, feed your kids well, and then come back and maybe we'll consider giving you antibiotics or something like that. Like just crazy stories because people have, created narratives in their mind of who I am and how I live my life and, and, and how I should be treated. And so when I talk about racialized experiences, I'm talking about those, those uh, false narratives and those um, you know, sin-filled hierarchies of, of wrongful ways that people treat each other. Okay, helpful, helpful. And so when you write this book, you write this book not just from an outside observer, but somebody who's walked through, who's experienced some of these uh, these racialized interactions and more. But you point to the scriptures over and over again, and um, and I think that's a key part of this conversation as well. So let's let's talk some Bible, and then I'm yeah. going to invite our callers in just a minute. So, but what does multi ethnicity mean, and how is it a as you describe it in the book a biblical principle? Yeah, multi ethnicity is it's simply is the other side of the coin to mono ethnicity, which is, uh, you know, if mono ethnic means the representation of one ethnic group, then multi ethnic means the, the representation of multiple ethnic groups. Uh, but I do think, and we clarify this in our book as well, that we have to differentiate between multi ethnic and multicultural, uh, because, right. uh, you know, think of the church context, for example, you can have a church that boasts, 
having congregants from 70 countries around the world, but still have a monocultural liturgy or a monocultural atmosphere. Uh, you know, multicultural, on the other hand, means that there is uh, equal space given to different cultural expressions and that people of different ethnicities can have meaningful engagement with their cultures in these spaces. And that's a much harder, uh, you know, challenge to accomplish. But I think, you know, when it comes to uh, Christian spaces, evangelical spaces, that is an important conversation. Um, but to to your point about um, where do we see multi-ethnicity in scripture? I, th I think, you know, if we even go back to uh, Genesis 1 through 11, right? Uh, you have this uh, command that God gives to Adam and Eve to, to go out, to be fruitful uh, and, and, and multiply throughout all the earth. And uh, there is this uh, implicit commendation uh, and, and, and scholars have written about this, you know, J. Daniel Hayes, a theology of race and, and, and others that there is this implicit commendation to go out and diversify <laughs> into all the earth. And so when we get to Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, and people stay put, one of the biggest issues happening here is that, is that God's people are not following his command to go out and diversify into the earth. And so um, instead of seeing what happens at Babel as a curse, it, it's, it's actually God kind of lovingly, gently forcing his people to continue to go out uh, in this sort of multiplicity of languages and ethnicities and cultural expressions. Uh, and that comes to a head in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, where God uses and leans into these cultural differences to bring more people to himself, that, that different languages actually spread forth the gospel. Love it. Love it. We're continuing our conversation with Michelle Reyes in just a moment. Uh, we also remember at that Revelation vision where Michelle was heading is uh, we see women and men from every tongue, tribe, and nation. So we're going to continue our conversation with you as well. 877-548-3675. We're talking about the RaceWise family. 877-548-3675. Hey, we're back continuing what I think is a really fascinating conversation. I hope you'll join us uh, in that conversation as well. Uh, if you've been listening along, you know we're talking to Michelle Reyes. We're talking about her book author with Helen Lee, The Race Wise Family, 10 Postures to Becoming Households of Healing and Hope. We were looking at some of the biblical picture that's there. Um, and, and Michelle, I want to touch on that one more because you explained how the Bible presents a complete vision of the redeemed in its glorious diversity uh, why do you think Christians often miss the importance of this? Yeah, well, I think, uh, <laughs> Ed, we could talk about that for hours. I, I think Forever. that we've been... exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so many things. We haven't been spiritually formed to have a robust theology of of race and culture. So I think there's some people that, that truly think the Bible doesn't talk about these these issues. Therefore, they aren't central to our faith. Uh, I, I think that we've also been formed, uh, misinformed, I should say, to, 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 to believe that issues of race, bringing up issues of race are divisive. Uh, but then I think there's also, 
even that the the, the fear that these topics, uh, everything from diversity to maybe some of the weightier topics of, of refer- reparations and uh, systemic uh, injustice are actually dangers to the gospel. And I think that's where I really want to uh, push back because I, I think for, for too long, uh, Christians have only had this sort of fear-based approach of what not to do. We have all these lists of, we're not going to read these books. We're not going to engage with these these uh, thinkers. Uh, we're not going to say these things. Uh, and, you know, even you could lump in the, the issue of book bans, right? We're going to ban these books. Uh, we're not going to let our children uh, read these topics. But I think that what what we're seeing in that is that we're engaging as as Christians, we're engaging in these topics with fear because it's unfamiliar. And we've convinced ourselves that if it's different, then it must be wrong. Uh, and and, and we, we prop up, and, and I'm not advocating for a critiquing CRT, but I think CRT has become this bogeyman to just squash conversations on race altogether. And so what, what I've found is that Sometimes the biggest naysayers uh, within sort of these evangelical circles who who want to avoid these topics and want to ban these people or ban these topics haven't really read them, read these books themselves. And and, and I, you know, want to ask, how can you critique what you don't fully understand? And, and so I think we have a reckoning as Christians to face our fears, um, to take that subject that that terrifies you, whether it's uh, the Holocaust, slavery, reparations, and and instead of deciding that our response as Christians should be to ban, to disengage, um, to shut down, we need to challenge ourselves to become better critical thinkers. Uh, and instead of a, developing a list of, of books in our home or in our churches of what we shouldn't read, what if we actually prayerfully and with the Bible in one hand and our community in the other, maybe checked out one of those dangerous books from the library and and with maybe your pastor or a spiritual director, like process these things, um, not because we want to, you know, jeopardize our faith, but because we, we're flipping the script to see the issue of race as part of integral to our building the kingdom of God in the here and now. And we have to figure out Instead of having knee-jerk reactions to squash any of these topics on race that feel dangerous, um, we have to have place a greater trust in God's word and the beautiful, capable mind that he's given us, uh, Romans 12, 2, that we can renew our mind daily through God's word. And so that if there's even a kernel of truth, you know, this, this law of common grace that God can give us through books, through movies, through articles, through YouTube videos, through other thought leaders on race that aligns with scripture, we can give it space to exist and even ask how this truth could help us strengthen and flourish the beloved community in the here and now. And I, I like your call to learn more about these issues. I would also say, you know, you mentioned critical race theory. I would also say that, I mean, I've read now seven books in and around critical race theory. And uh, first of all, the, the some of the dimensions of it, I'm still trying to to get a hold of. Um, and so yes. that's where, so what is, I mean, again, I, I would also say too, that, you know, there are parts of this that concern me. I think, I think they're, you know, calling mm, someone who believes yeah. in systemic racism, a critical race theorist doesn't make any sense. And I, I get the reductionistic sort of ways that that's used to dismiss things. I also, you know, having now read seven, eight books, I'm kind of like, you know, there are parts of this that I don't find helpful, that I do find yeah. would be 
push outside of what we as Christians might see, you know, oppressed and oppressor groups and what that looks like. So I can, I can, so, so, but, but in saying, go read those books, I think I'm not, I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm saying, so at what point, at what level of expertise does the normal everyday Christian need? I want to, I want to understand the lived experience of people that are different than mine. You've mentioned black and brown communities. I want to, I want to grow in my knowledge and awareness of, um, you know, structures and systems in the world that are broken. So how, how much, like people listening or, you know, someone's maybe driving truck, maybe someone's a high school teacher, whatever it may be, how much and how should I engage some of these topics as a follower of Jesus living my life? Yeah, no, I think that's so good. I mean, honestly, I think it just starts with that posture to challenge ourselves to not be afraid of difference. I I honestly think this is why we need more Asian American Christians at the table in conversation. Uh, You know, my mom grew up Hindu and she converted to Christianity when she met my dad and and they got married. Uh, and, And so for me growing up, I was constantly at this uh, intersection of talking with Christians and talking with Hindus. Uh, I grew up reading the Bible alongside books on Indian mythology and Indian folklore um, and, and, uh, and uh, Middle Easterners and other South Asians who, who uh, you know, followed Islam or, or other religions. And so for me growing up, I never thought that talking with a Muslim or just anybody who thought differently about the Bible than I did, like the, the, that context, that that situation in of itself was bad or was dangerous. And, and instead, mm-hmm. I was raised to see any any connection, any conversation as, as potentially being gospel opportunity, you know, to share sure. the love of Christ and to, to, you know, honor and hear the other person out and, and, and have a rich and fruitful conversation. Uh, and I think there, within the Western church, we just, we have such a fear of anybody who's not Christian and, 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 sure. and people who think differently, that hold to different religions, that hold to different ideologies. Uh, and I agree with you. I, I don't agree with, with uh, all of the different principles and, 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 and precedents of, of some of these theories. Uh, certainly not. But I don't fear having the conversation. And I don't okay. fear at the very least saying, okay, uh, tell me more about Right. What your thoughts on this topic? Um, because they, they, I, I don't seem to think the same way that you do. But I want to understand where you're coming from. And so, you know, for like you said, for the the mom listening in, for the truck driver, just you know, the average Christian who you know doesn't have ten hours a day to go read all these books, can we at least, when we come into conversation with people, at least trust in the lean into the Holy Spirit? And, and trust in God um, to give us wisdom and grace and lean in and say, hey, can you just tell me more about what you're thinking? I, I, I'd love to hear. And then if you're mm-hmm. open to it, I'd love to share my, my thoughts as well. And, and to do better at having nuanced, grace-filled conversations with, with each other. Yeah, if you like the kind of conversation we're having right now, this is kind of how... Michelle and Helen in the RaceWise family, they help you to think through some issues. They walk through scripture to get there. I've had the privilege of endorsing the book, and I want to encourage you to pick up a copy as well. But let's go to our calls. I'm going to invite others as well, but it's 877-548-3675, 877-548-3675. So we're going to, we're going to continue our conversation 
in uh, in just a moment. Matter of fact, Ginger, I'm going to get to your call in just a moment. And uh, we're going to kind of just open it up to conversation with you as well. Talk about the RaceWise family, 10 postures to becoming households of healing and hope. I want to talk about some of those postures. I'm going to talk about how you can, as parents, I mean, that's what the book is written towards, for parents uh, engage in these conversations with kids and more. Our number is 877-548-3675 here on Moody Radio. Give us a call. We'll continue our conversation in just a moment. Hey, we're back. Ed Stetzer are live and uh, continue our conversation with Michelle Reyes. Good conversation. And let me also uh, mention that uh, we are taking your calls, 877-548-3675. We're going to go first to Ginger in Maryland. I think she's listening on WRBS. Welcome to the program, Ginger. You're live. Oh, thank you so much. I just um, understand what she is going through because most of our family is a mixture of um, Irish, Native American, uh, West African, South African. And when you see some of the family, like my aunt, people think she's from India. And Mm -hmm. she's very dark. She has those features. And I talk to people that say, why is it we are going by our physical appearance? And when we assume that you're looking a certain way, you're a certain race. And people don't believe that you're a certain race if you're dark or if you're a certain race, if you're light, if you have green eyes or blue eyes. And that's something that I've dealt with a lot of my life. I've seen that. I had a lot of friends like that. And I love when he's from Trinidad. He's very dark, but he's, he speaks with an accent, a French accent. So people think, oh, you're French. You're from Haiti. No, mm. I'm from Trinidad. So that's something I can attest to what she's saying. And it's, this is a very heavy subject, very heavy subject nowadays. And how do you cope with it? How how do yeah. you try to to you can't overpower it because it's overpowering us in many ways. How do we get through this? And how do we talk to yeah. kids? How do we talk to other people? Yeah. 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 Well, let's 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 hear from Michelle. Michelle, um, I, Ginger, if you'll hold on, our producer is going to jump on the line in just a minute after Michelle answers, and we're going to give you a copy of the Racewise Family, which is part of the question we're having here. So, how do we do this? Uh, Michelle, help us out. Yeah, that's such a great question. Uh, You know, what you're hitting on is just this danger of the single story. Uh, And I've I've had experiences like that my whole life, right, where uh, I tell people that I'm Indian and they're like, well, you don't look Indian or uh, Mm. or I tell them that I'm Indian and their 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 face kind of lights up and they're like, oh, so does that mean that you like non or or oh, you're Indian? Have you seen Slumdog Millionaire? Uh, Because that's like the only categories that they have for Indians and Indian culture. And, you know, the minute that I say, well, actually, no, I I didn't grow up eating uh, naan because, you know, my family's not from that part of India that eats naan. You can just kind of see the disappointment sink in of like, oh, you're not the type of Indian that I thought you were. Um, And I think this is an even greater challenge for my own children who are, they're they're not only bicultural, they're multicultural, they're multiracial. And they don't look like any sort of perceived group. They don't uh, have all the same shared values as one singular group. And what I and my husband have been leaning into is affirming them and helping them uh, celebrate who they are as 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 mixed race kids. And this is actually a really important uh, 
reality. You know, the the, the U.S. Census uh, shows that mixed race is the second largest demographic in our country, that mixed marriages are the fastest growing marriages in our country for kids age 15 and younger. Uh, over 50% are brown and mixed. So that statistic we've been talking about for a while of 2045 and, and the browning of America, it's not just brown, it's like he, mixed hues of brown. Uh, and, and so mixed folks are the next leaders in our churches. Mixed folks are our next teachers, our next doctors, probably our next president. Uh, and, and so how do we, as for our kids, uh, you know, one on a, on a daily basis, name and celebrate that God has made them mixed. And part of how we do that in our family is, you know, we go big with food. Um, you know, we, we have cultural fusions. We have Indian food and Mexican food every week. And we talk about how we eat this food because we are Indian and Mexican, um, I take every opportunity I can to um, highlight their skin color and their physical features, like my son's brown curly hair, um, because oftentimes uh, straight hair is prioritized over curly hair. And so when I'm combing his hair or helping put lotion on his legs, like I tell him, you know, gosh, God made you with this amazing brown curly hair. Like you are so handsome uh, as an, you know, Indian Mexican boy or your caramel colored skin, like you know, that, that's how God made you. And, and, and it is, it is an awesome skin color to have. Uh, and, and then we also affirm them that they can like and be multiple things. Um, they, they can wear different clothing, you know, American clothing, Indian clothing, Mexican clothing. They can, uh, like, you know, we listen to Christian hip hop in both English and Spanish in our home, uh, oh, and so on. <laughs> uh, and, and that we affirm them it's okay to like these different things. That's part of what makes you, you. And, and then we finally, we tell them, Hey, God's calling you to lead. Uh, you know, when you're older, you know, God's calling you to be a leader for the next generation. We just name that so that he knows my, and my daughter will know when they go out into the world, God made them on purpose, that they are uh, beautifully and wonderfully made, that they can take pride in that, and that they know they have a special role to play. Um, and man, we hit that every day, every week. And so that's the language on their tongue. And um, it's that kind of intentional formation um, that's required, I think, for this cultural moment, particularly when it comes to, to mixed race children. Yeah. And I, one of the quick questions I'd have, um, I'm kind of running out of time. I want to get a couple of calls, but how, how, what, when people approach you, you say, people say I'm this, people say I'm that for people who are listening. I mean, what is the best way to have a conversation? I mean, I've just seen so many strange conversations where it starts <laughs> guessing what somebody else is. I'm like, no, 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 no. So help coach people. How do yes. you help your kids? Cause that's the race wise family is key part of this. Help you help your kids to have conversations about this without overstepping. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's uh, instead of asking those pointed questions, ask open-ended questions. Instead of, you know, asking somebody, hey, are you Indian? Just ask, hey, you know, what are your ethnic roots? Or even more generally, uh, what's your story? And allow people to fill in their own details as they want to, as they feel comfortable. And then, you know, based off of what they share, honor them with their own self-definitions and use that vocabulary, right? Because, you know, first-gen 
uh, Indians might say, I'm Indian. They uh, First gen immigrants usually identify with their home country more than the United States. Second gen and third onward usually identifies more with the racial identities of the United States. Like I'm Asian American, I'm black American. Um, or my husband, you know, he prefers saying that he's Mexican American, but we have Mexican American friends in California who prefer to be called Chicano. So have open-ended questions say you know what's your story what are your ethnic roots give people the honor of self-definition and then use the vocabulary that they uh that that they share about themselves okay so we've only got a couple minutes left so we've got to have quick questions so callers online i'm talking to you we got to have quick questions and then michelle we got to have quicker answers too so let's go to roy (laughs) in los angeles roy you're live on the air what's your question your comment hello um i was I'm white, and I I started going to primarily African American church about 40 years ago, and um, ended up marrying an African American woman. And uh, but my niece, my sister was raised or was in the same church, and then she had a couple. Right, we only got we only got a, one, about a minute left, Roy. So go ahead and get right to the question. Okay, so she she my daughter was raised in the mostly African-American environment. So, but when she kind of jumped on the Trump bandwagon, Donald Trump, and so now she doesn't even really believe that racism is a thing. She thinks it's kind of like in the past and stuff, contrary to what mm-hmm. she saw. So I'm pretty sure that is a, describes a lot of Christians and some of them that didn't have the background she did. So I'm wondering, how do you deal with kind of the elephant in the room that the Donald Trump and a lot of the Republican Party, they're kind of, seems like they're quicker to embrace white white nationalism than, than okay. actually multiculturalism. Okay. Ray, I want, you to ho- I want you to hold on the line because we give you a copy of The Racewise Family. So, And let me just generalize the question here. What do you, how do you have conversations, Michelle, with maybe people who don't, who don't hold the view that there are still issues of race and racial justice to be addressed? We've got about a minute or so for that answer. I know that's a lot, but jump in. Yeah, I'll, I'll say this as, as quickly as I can. First, I think it's important to, in terms of the climate, de-escalate as best as you can keep these conversations from being hostile and angry. Second, uh, you know, when you're talking with somebody who holds to a different political stance than you, don't fight rhetoric with rhetoric. Instead, aim to get to the heart of the matter. Ask them uh, more personal questions like, what what are you really worried about? What concerns you? Or what are you passionate about? Um, the more we can hear each other's heartbeats uh, and, and, and passions and concerns, I think the more we can have you know, deep conversations. And then I think third is when, when somebody offends you, you know, with political rhetoric to, to, to talk about, Hey, this is how this landed with me. Um, this is how this emotionally made me feel. And let me tell you a little bit about my, my story and why I see things differently. And so thankful for your story, Michelle Reyes. Thank you for coming on and having this conversation with us. Again, I, I endorse the book. I like the book. I want you to pick up the book. The book is The Race Wise Family, 10 Postures to Becoming Households of Healing and Hope. And it's also co-authored by my friend Helen Lee, which makes it a double win. And I know, Helen, I need to get to know Michelle. So, Michelle, next time we're, I'm sure we'll be at a conference together. Look forward to getting to know you. And uh, thank you so much for your work as well. Thanks to everyone who's uh, been listening as well. Let me also mention our team at Moody Radio, Trish McMillan, who's been uh, engineering today as, as Karen is a pro producer today. Karen's actually on a mission trip. Thankful for that. Uh, Courtney is always our engineer. Mara's uh, manning the phones as well. Thankful for them. Let me remind you that you can find us, as always, at edstetralive.com. All the resources are there as well. Thanks for listening.